Amen. You may be seated. Y'all doing good this morning? Very good. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 6 this morning. Uh, Before we jump in, I want to just spend a couple moments uh, celebrating a few things. Uh, One, I just want to say thank you to uh, our worship team. Don't they do a great job every week leading us in worship? And I want to also say a big thank you to a, a group of uh, people who don't get enough recognition as the behind the scenes, the sound, the media guys uh, and ladies. Um, Mike, who uh, was up here uh, leading our music this morning, he also does uh, all of our media stuff. He He's up here at the church making sure uh, these worship spaces are ready to go. Um, and he does a great job. And he has been here uh, serving for uh, right at five years. And, and then I also want to give a big shout out to James Uh, Hudgens back in the sound booth. Uh, James is uh, a servant and he is, uh, I think it were right at around 20 years ago, he stepped into the sound booth here at Schindler Drive and has been serving here um, faithfully week in and week out. And uh, again, uh, just one of those guys that spends a lot of hours up here to make sure things go right on Sundays. And so James, we appreciate you, Mike, we appreciate all that you guys do. Thank you so much. Um, also want, where's Logan Malloy at? Logan, stand up. Uh, Logan uh, has spent the last year in uh, Japan and he is back home. And man, we're grateful that you are home. And I know your wife is more grateful than anybody that you're home. And they are expecting that baby. And we're just so happy for y'all. Glad you're home, man. Thank you for your service. Had a great week of ministry, and it's just been a great weekend. Yesterday, we had a great time with all of our men who were involved in our men's ministry golf tournament, and thank y'all for being involved in that. Because of your involvement, I actually gave a lower figure than what it'll probably be. We were able to raise what would be close to $1,000 for First Coast Women's Services. So thank y'all so much for being involved in that. And then also, simultaneously, you know, yesterday going on was the... Women's ministry throwing a baby shower for First Coast Women's Services. So uh, it was awesome to collect all those items for all those ladies who will be blessed through that. So it's been a great weekend of ministry. Look forward to getting to the word this morning. We're going to continue our study in Acts. This is week six. And uh, already in Acts, as we've been moving through this, we've seen a lot of exciting things happen uh, here in the early church, the birth of the early church. Uh, we see how Jesus is continuing his work through the work of these apostles and these early disciples. And we've seen people be saved. Uh, we've seen him work uh, miraculously uh, in different ways. Uh, seen the church face opposition, but it's been very clear that nothing is going to stop the advancement of the gospel. And at this point in the story, what it's going to do is it's going to zoom in on the kind of people that God uses in the movement. And it's pretty awesome to think about who God is first, to think about how God is a sovereign, majestic, holy, perfect, all-powerful creator, and then think about the kind of people that he chooses to use. It's actually really surprising. It surprised the religious crowds in Acts 4.13. It says, now when they, this is the big wig religious leaders, saw the boldness of the first apostles, namely there, he's talking about Peter and John, and perceived that they were in, what does it say there? Were they perceiving that they were awesome and from the university and could spell really good and were in really good shape and did CrossFit and ate, you know, vegan food and that kind of stuff? No, it says, what does it say there? They perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were, when they realized this, that they're common men, it says that they were astonished and recognized what? That they had been with Jesus. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to look at 
uh, three people that Acts will focus on. Three ordinary people who are called by an extraordinary God who he accomplishes extraordinary things for his glory through their lives. And we're going to begin this morning uh, with one of these guys. So stand with your Bibles open. Uh, I'll begin to read, and we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, but we're just going to read a few uh, select pieces of Scripture, and then we'll walk through it. Acts chapter 6, beginning to read in verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great things, or great wonders, and signs among people. Then some of the some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the uh, Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, uh, rose up and disputed with Stephen. They could not withstand the wisdom of the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secured or, or secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred at the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him. And brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. It's talking about the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. All right, now I want you to go all the way over to the end of Acts chapter 7. Because between where we just left off and where we're about to pick up in verse 51, Stephen preaches the longest sermon recorded in Acts. All right, so we won't read all of that right now, but I'll refer to it in just a moment. But this is at the end of it. This is how he ends his message. Super encouraging. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, talking about John the Baptist, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. And it says in verse 54, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and and they ground their teeth at him. But he was full of the Holy Spirit and gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Uh, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that in this room, you would help this room to remain distraction-free this morning. You would help our minds uh, to learn your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would help our hearts to believe it. That you would help us to apply it. Empower us with the uh, ability to be able to apply these truths in our lives where we need to apply it this morning. Where you aren't reigning as Lord, as King. And Lord, I just pray that you would stir our affections for you as a result of being in the word together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you may have already noticed if you have really been paying attention in this study that we've kind of hit the accelerator a little bit. We've accelerated through this and kind of jumped ahead, but I want to fill in some of the gaps right here real quickly. We left off with Ananias and Sapphira last week. And uh, after that happens, the Spirit of God continues to move. Peter and John, they're preaching. They're being used by God greatly. Uh, Large numbers of people are continuing to be added to the church and the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's moving with such great power. You can read that they're using the the apostles are being used by God to perform such great miracles that people are actually bringing lame people out just so when Peter, who's really busy, will walk by, his shadow will pass over them. Like people are being healed like that. So this is a very uh, unique but extraordinary, exciting time in the life of 
the church. God's moving. It's exciting. It's exciting to be a part of, but not everybody's excited. Not everybody is excited. And so the apostles, they get arrested again. Uh, But if you read in, I encourage you to do so in Acts chapter five, an angel comes and breaks them out of jail. It's like a jailbreak story. It's pretty cool. Tells them to go preach some more. They go and look in their jail. So where did they go? Oh, they're down here preaching again. So they go and take them before a council and the leaders, the, uh, they question them and the apostles. It's maybe my favorite verse in, um, really all of, of Acts. They say in there in verse uh, 29, we must obey God rather than men. And I love that moment because at the beginning of chapter five, you got two people in an essence of fire who fear men more than they fear God. And then the chapter ends with two guys who fear God more than they fear men, which is the way it should be. Well, they decide not to kill them. All right. And, and instead they, they flog them and they tell them to go and to stop uh, preaching the name of Jesus. And then what happens is the narrative zooms in and focuses on one ordinary man named Stephen. Now, we've seen a lot of firsts in the story of the early church as recorded in Acts. We've seen the first sermon preached, the first converts in the New Testament church. We've seen the first uh, bit of opposition. We said the first miracle, the lame man being healed. We've seen uh, all kinds of firsts. And here's a first. We see the first disciple of Christ in the age of grace be martyred for his faith. And his name is Stephen. And what Stephen does is he serves, we're not following Stephen this morning, but we are going to look at Stephen's life as a great example of what it looks like to follow Christ. And Stephen serves as that. A great example of what it looks like to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ who really made it an impact, a kingdom impact that outlived his life. And as we learn from his life, we can follow in those footsteps which of course, ultimately are following the footsteps of Christ and make a similar kind of impact for the glory of God. First thing I want you to notice about Stephen's life, and all of this has to do with how Stephen exalted Jesus, all right? As, and hopefully that makes sense as we were just reading how he gets a vision of the exalted Savior. He lived his life exalting Jesus. And the first thing we see is Stephen exalted Christ in his life. For one, and really the main way we see him exalting Christ with his life is in the way that he served people like Jesus, He's introduced here in Acts as a servant of the church. If you back up to the beginning of chapter 6, if you get your Bibles or your Bible app, if you back up to the beginning of chapter 6, you can see, you know, the church has been uh, experiencing tremendous growth. And as we know, sometimes growing's good, but growing can bring some pain with it too. They're called growing pains. All right, you may have experienced that in your work or your organization. You may experience that with your family. You bring a baby into your house, you're going to experience some growing pains. Right? I wasn't ready for that. Like this human being like doesn't sleep at night. Like it's going to stay up throughout the night. How many times is a diaper, diaper going to need to be changed? That thing is a game changer. A good one. Right? We love our kids, but it does change things. There are growing pains. So think about the growth, and this is good growth. Again, it's happening in the early church. But think about the, the growth. It just balloons in growth. It goes from 120. goes to 3,000 in a day. Then jumps to 5,000. That's just counting the men. So there was fifteen to 20,000 people and it continues to grow. And the apostles are kind of leading the charge and, and helping serve and lead and tend and shepherd this body. That's difficult. And so what happened is the Grecians, also called the Hellenists, there at the beginning of chapter 6. It says that they got a little complaint they want to put in the complaint box. All right. About the way things are going in the early church. And so they bring their complaint. And it says this in verse one, it's, it's important the way that it's worded here. It says a complaint arose 
uh, against the Hebrews. All right, so the Hebrews spoke Aramaic and they spoke Greek. And, and they're like, listen, the, the Grecians are like, here's the problem, all right? You guys are giving out food to all the widows, but the, the problem is you're doing a good job tending to the Hebrew widows, but you're neglecting all the Grecian widows. And so uh, they didn't like that. And here's what I want you to see here is they're making a good point. What we're going to see is they're pointing out something that did need to be fixed. But the problem is, is the way that they're going about it. Again, it says a, a complaint arose against the Hebrews. The way that this is laid out, it seems to indicate that they were assuming that it was because of a racial reason. And it really wasn't. They were jumping to that conclusion. Uh, also, it's, it's impl- implying that there was a lot of complaining going on already. It arose among the Grecians about the Hebrews. And so there's, there's gossiping and there's murmuring and there's grumbling happened, happening right there. And so at this point in the life of the church, we've seen Satan, and he's behind all the opposition. We've seen Satan attack the church from the outside. We've seen Satan attack the church from the inside through a sinful choices, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, that they made. But now what we see is we see a new tactic that he's using that he still continues to use to this day. This is where it started. And that's him attacking the unity of the church uh, through belittling, through grumbling, through distrust, through judging the motives of members of the church and, and leaders in the church. And here's the problem is today that happens and we don't see it as seriously as we should. We don't see it always as an attack from the enemy, but it's just that. That when you think about that, and all of us have been in a position where maybe you've judged the motives of your brothers and sisters, where you've grumbled, where you murmured, where you've gossiped. And it's a sobering moment right here where you realize, wow, when that happens, when I judge the motives of my brother or sister in Christ, uh, what's happening is in that moment, I am being used by Satan. I'm being used by Satan to plant division within that body that I'm a part of. And this, in the early church, this spirit had never been in the room before. And yet here it is, a critical, negative, complaining, backbiting spirit, by the way, that has more power and potential to inflict more damage on the church than persecution does. A church is more likely to survive. I say this, not just survive, but to thrive through persecution. To not just survive it, but withstand it and come out on the other side stronger in their faith, loving Jesus more. It's more likely to survive ongoing persecution than it is to survive ongoing complaining and ongoing grumbling and gossiping. And some of you have seen this. Some of you have seen how church can split. Maybe that's part of your story. You, you came from a church or your family's connected with a church that split, sometimes over the stupidest stuff. I heard a great preacher's story this week about a guy who survived a, a plane crash. So he survives this plane crash and he washes up, finds himself washed up on this shore out in the middle of the ocean, kind of like castaway style. And there he is by himself, has to make life work. Well, a couple months, several months go by, uh, a couple years go by and finally rescue comes. And they come and they come onto the island and they find this guy and they're very impressed. He's actually doing pretty good. He's found some systems that have worked for him. And they begin to question him about this time on the island. And then they noticed three big dwellings, three big buildings on the island. And they say, well, what are those, what are those buildings? And he says, well, the first one's my home. I said, that's impressive. So what's the second one? He goes, that's First Baptist Church of the Island. <laughs> yeah. He said, well, that's pretty cool. He goes, well, what's the third one? He goes, that's Second Baptist Church. We had a split in the first one. 
cheesy joke, but seriously, there's something in our flesh that can find stuff to split over. That, that, that we like to take sides. We like to, uh, to involve ourselves in whether it's complaining and gossip and murmuring and complaining. And the world will say it's a survival tactic that you just kind of have to, it has to be part of your life in order for you to survive, in order for you to relationally uh, get through. But through the lens of scripture, listen, gossiping is something all of us deal with and it's always wrong. Always. It's always wrong. And complaining, listen, let me just give you some, here's one piece of advice I would give to you if you ever have a complaint towards someone and they've done something to, to hurt you or you, they've done something that you've disagreed with. There's two people you need to talk to. You need to talk to God and you talk to that person. Right? Don't talk about that person. Talk to that person. And before you talk to that person, talk to God about that person. Well, anyway, let's move on. When... It finally gets to the disciples. So the interesting thing is they're not offended by this observation. They're not offended by this constructive criticism. They actually view it as an opportunity. The apostles have been doing a lot of the serving. They've been doing a lot of the work. They've been doing a lot of the caring for the widows. They were servants. And, uh, and they, they're realizing, you know what? This is probably right. We're, some things are slipping through the cracks right here. If we're, if we're going to continue as the apostles to do what God's called us to do, ultimately our job in serving the church is what? To teach the church. Is to make sure that we our schedules are freed up enough to where we can be accurately and consistently and passionately and prayerfully preaching the word. So we need some help. And so they select seven qualified men for you know assembling the very first deacon body right here. And most of them were Greek. They said the Grecian widows are the ones who are getting neglected. Man, let's let's uh, select some some Greek men to be deacons and to take care of them well. And Stephen was one of those first men to be selected. He's one of the first deacons, and he's mentioned there in the first few verses of chapter 6. And what we find, about, find out about Stephen right out of the gate is he's a servant-hearted guy. They selected him because they saw in him a servant-heartedness that reflected Christ. His life was consumed with a passion to serve people. Now, why? Because Jesus served people. He's a follower of Jesus. He's learned by watching and being around the apostles and how they served. And why were they so passionate about serving? Because they watched the way Jesus served. They watched the way how the Lord of the universe, the king of everything in existence, knelt down and washed their stank feet. And that impacted them. They realized that part of this is being servant-hearted. And that, that servant-heartedness invaded the early church. It was everywhere. Again, that's why I mentioned last week why I believe the early church was so effective had such an explosive impact because people walked into the church and we need to hear this today. And they just weren't hearing the right things being said. They weren't just hearing the gospel being heralded and proclaimed. They felt it. They weren't just hearing messages about grace and mercy and humility and love. They felt it. It was tangible when they walked in, the way people were serving one another, the way people were putting other people's needs in front of their own. It felt different. One of the big differences was this Christ-like servant heartedness. And that, listen, that is how the gospel continues to have explosive impact today. When people come onto this campus and are greeted with a smile in the name of Jesus, that matters. When people come and a door is open, they're greeted in the name of Jesus, that matters. By the way, I love that we have like Way like overqualified people just opening doors. I think the church is the only place you're going to see something like that. Passionately opening doors for people. I love that. 
I love the fact that we, some of y'all, you, you have major responsibilities at your workplace. Some of you are managing like large teams of adults. You're running businesses. Like you have degrees and yet some of you choose to spend time back in our kids ministry down on the floor playing with toddlers in the name of Jesus. That's awesome. Teaching kids about Jesus. Discipling teenagers in Christ likeness. I love that. Some of you Sunday school teachers, you show up early to make sure your your room is set up in a way that when people come in, they feel welcome. I mean, you serve in our our kitchen area, hospitality areas, our music and media ministries. Some of you serve in different ways that maybe we don't see throughout the week, but we need to, Schindler Drive, by the way, has had a history of being good at this. And listen, we need to make sure we continue to maintain that. We need to make sure we maintain a servant heartedness in such a way that wells up to the point where it's spilling over into the community, where it's making an impact. By the way, what that means is if you're not serving anywhere, you need to start serving somewhere. All right. You're like, well, I'm just waiting. See, I'm just like waiting on the right opportunity that aligns with my specific passions and my specific set of skills and gifts that God has given me. And I haven't seen anything listed that really aligns with that here at the church, my personal passions and my personal schedule. You don't see that in the early church, right? You got Stephen cleaning up crumbs, right? I don't know how passionate he was about that. I don't know if he was like skipping into the early church fellowship hall every week, like some kind of musical, right? Be our guest, be our, I love to clean where some crumbs I can sweep up, right? He didn't do it necessarily because it was his passion. He did it because there was a need there. He was meeting a need. And so we need to maintain that mindset. He was a servant because he never forgot what Jesus did for him. And nothing was beneath him. See, when you realize what Jesus did, nothing will be beneath you when it comes to serving. Listen, because even washing the feet of sinners, and you think of the people's feet that he was washing, not only those who would betray him, those who would completely betray him and turn their back on him, sell him for a bag of silver, Judas's feet. Even foot washing wasn't beneath him. Well, verse 8 Again, the text narrows and it focuses in on Stephen's life and and we learn some more about him. And this is important right here. It says he was full of grace and power and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And a few verses down, it says he was also full of wisdom. And what that verse reminds us about when we talk about looking at someone like Stephen who's following Christ and learning from his life, what this reminds us of is all the ways that Stephen is going to be used, these, these incredible ways for the glory of God, extraordinary ways through the life of this ordinary man, we remember that he was just that ordinary. We remember that nothing great that happened through Stephen's life was because he was great, was because he was awesome, because he, because he had anything to offer in and of himself. It just is simply a result of a man who collided with the gospel and has learned to lean on Jesus and yield to the spirit in such a way that his, his life is filled continuously with the grace and the power and the wisdom of God. And it's a reminder for us to lean on Jesus the same way if we want to be filled in a similar way. But here's the warning. You, you walk that path, it may not always go well for you in this world. There's a warning right here. You may get into some trouble. Second, second thing here is uh, Stephen exalted Christ in his message. And this is where he really got into trouble. They didn't have as much problem about what he did, but about what he said. Verse 9 says, Then some who belonged to the synagogue, synagogue of the freedmen weren't fans of uh, these, this, this, the synagogue uh, 
there, you know, some background there. There were 400 synagogues there in Jerusalem. And so there was a lot of them. And what happened is some of these, these foreign Jews, were, they were called foreign Jews, these guys who had a Greek background or raised in Greek culture. They moved into that area and they actually built their own synagogues. And so this is one of those synagogues. And they start running into this guy, Stephen, who is continuously serving the widows. Not a huge problem with that. Uh, they do have a little bit of a problem with that because he's almost like outserving the priest. He says at the very end of that little section, at the beginning of chapter 6 and verse 7, that the priests were being saved. And we think that's because that they were watching the way that Stephen was serving the widows, who those priests were in charge of serving. And it's stirring up some problems here. Again, not as much problem about what he did, but all of a sudden they begin to to collide with what he's saying. He's not just meeting people's physical needs. He's saying things that the Pharisees are disgusted by. Does that sound similar to anybody else in scripture? He's walking the path of Jesus. And the problem with these religious bullies, and it's the same thing that Jesus ran into as well, is every time they try to jump in the ring and wrangle with him, they lose. So ordinary man filled with the wisdom of God continues to outwisdom them. So being cowards, all that they fi- figure out to do is they huddle up and they say, hey, we got to shut this guy up. We've got, this isn't just a pest. This is a problem that we need to deal with. So they create a smear campaign. They hire witnesses to testify against him falsely. And again, what path is he walking? He's walking the same path that his suffering Savior walked. Pharisees and Sadducees, just like Jesus, can't handle him, so they're going to eliminate him. And specifically, here's the problem that they had. They had a problem with his message about the law and the temple. And what Stephen was preaching was this, that the law and the temple can't save you. That the law and the temple, that everything in the Old Testament involving the law and the temple, they point you to the one who can save you. Religious people don't like that talk. Religious people don't like the talk of grace. They don't like the talk of Jesus accomplishing and finishing a work on the cross that can completely save. Religious people don't like to talk about those things. They would rather have rules over inward transformation and relationship. And that message is as true today as it is then and a message we need to hear. Stephen's preaching this basically. He's saying this. You cannot enter into a right relationship with God by stepping into a building called a temple. You can't enter enter into a right relationship with God today because you stepped foot into a Bible-believing church like this one. You can't step into a right relationship with God by staying in step with certain commands in Scripture, by staying in step with some really good rules and trying to wash yourself up and clean yourself up that way. It's only by stepping into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through faith and repentance that you can be saved. And that is the point that Stephen's making. That's the point that they didn't like. And as Stephen is standing there on trial, what happens is he steps up this ordinary man and he, without any time to prepare, this wasn't on his calendar. There's a whole sermon here about being, making sure that you're prepared and that you understand God's word to the point that you can give some defense. He steps up and he preaches the longest sermon recorded in Acts. I'm not going to read all of that to you right now. It's really long. I encourage you to read it, but I will summarize it in verses one through eight. He takes you back to the beginning of the Hebrew nation, when God goes to Abraham in Mesopotamia and he says, hey, I'm going to begin a work through your family. And not not a whole lot of questions. I just need you to pack your stuff up, pick your stuff up and follow me. We'll figure it out as we go. And that conversation had to go great with his wife, right? 
Abraham's called the father of faith. Sarah had a lot of faith too, as her husband comes to her and says, hey, God came to me and we're supposed to like move across the other side of the country and we're going to sell all of our stuff and, and you know, pack things up and move out. And uh, I don't have a plan. I don't know where we're going. We'll figure it out as we go. You know, I'm sure she was like, thank you, Lord, for sending me this man to lead our family, right? I'll gladly submit to his leadership. Follows him and God works a miracle. And they are in the late in age, they're able to have a baby, Isaac, who has two sons. Uh, Jacob's one of those sons. Jacob has Joseph. And so you'll see a lot written about Joseph right here in verses 9 through 19. And so he's given a summary of the Old Testament. But here's the point. He focuses in on two people, Joseph and Moses. And Joseph is the first one. And he's bringing them up because he, he rejected is the word right here. He wants, he wants them to remember that these two men, he's only bringing up two, that he knows these men would have revered out of the Old Testament times that both of them were rejected by the nation of Israel. That both of them were rejected by Jews, by the Hebrew nation. The first is, you know, we see them early on rejected, Joseph rejected by his brothers. And yet God exalts him to a place of importance in Egypt to where he ends up saving his family. He's a type of Christ. He's pointing to Jesus. But he wants them to see that in the Old Testament, God's people rejected him. Then Stephen covers 400 years and a couple verses and then talks about another great leader again that the Pharisees revered, Moses, who was sent by God to rescue his people, to take them out of bondage, out of Egypt. Again, a type of Christ. In verse 37, he actually points out that Moses, the one that they, they were all about Moses. Stephen had been accused of blaspheming Moses. And he goes, no, I'm a big fan of Moses. Moses is great. But Moses is the one, and he points out in verse 37, Moses is the one who actually talked about Jesus. And saying that God would raise up another prophet. And here's his point in this sermon. This is the point that he's making. He's saying, don't you guys see that every great leader, that every great prophet that God has sent to this nation, that they've been rejected? That you've rejected? Joseph rejected by his brothers. Moses led your people out of Egypt and into the wilderness and went up on Mount Sinai to get the law and comes down. You rejected him. And in the same way, you've rejected the one all of them pointed to. You betrayed him and you've crucified him. And then Stephen And it focuses in on the temple because that, again, was a big talking point with these Pharisees. And and in verse 44, he begins there, and here's his big point. They they made the temple into something that it wasn't. It was never meant to be a permanent place where the presence of God was supposed to permanently dwell on this earth. And Stephen is ultimately explaining this. Jesus' death has changed everything about the temple and has changed everything about the law. In fact, Stephen is explaining that Jesus' death and resurrection has eliminated the need for the temple. Because Jesus is coming, he's changed everything. You see, you used to have to come into the temple and you used to have to sacrifice animals in order for your sins to be atoned for. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the ultimate sacrifice who came to take away the sins of the world. And he's the doorway into a right relationship with God. You don't get to God by going through a temple. You don't get to God by going through a religion. You don't get to God because you keep up with a program. The way you get to God and the only way you get to God is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ and by God's grace alone. They didn't like that. He's saying to these guys' face who they idolized the temple. Almost saw it as a good luck charm. They couldn't think about their life without it. He's saying, I'm here to tell you Jesus is better than the temple. What Hebrews teaches us. 
That in the same way, at some level, the tabernacle and the temple were kind of where heaven met earth. Heaven has met earth ultimately in Jesus Christ. He died for us so that we could live through him. He's been resurrected from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the father, seated there in power and authority. He is our high priest. You say, you don't need the temple. You got something better. It's Jesus. And you know, you just betrayed him and crucified him. And listen, you, you follow in the footsteps of a guy like Stephen who's ultimately following Jesus. And what you'll find is you'll find the same result. You will not be the coolest kid in the room. Biblical Christianity will never be cool. It will always be offensive. And it will always be heard and perceived as too exclusive and too narrow. And like Stephen, your, your, your life, what it will become is it will become offensive and it will rub against people the wrong way because it will begin to serve as a flashing sign that will warn people that they're headed down the wrong way. That's why they didn't want to listen to him. In fact, that begs a good question in my life. Is, is my life exalting Christ to the level and is the message that I'm proclaiming and declaring and speaking day in and day out, exalting Christ to the extent that it's countercultural enough for people to sense what they sense in Stephen's life. Well, they definitely sensed it, sensed it in Stephen's message. Look at the way he ends his sermon. If that wasn't enough, he just says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people, you stubborn people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Needless to say, they're not happy with Stephen right here. It says they ground their teeth. I don't know what that means. It's like ran at him and like with their teeth grinding. But they're enraged and they surround him and now Stephen's gonna suffer. Final chapter of Stephen's life right here. But what we see is the final reason why he was effective and it's this. Not only was Christ exalted in his life and in his message, we see Stephen exalted Christ in his suffering. They're livid with Stephen. By the way, how do you respond when you're opposed? How do you respond when people are hostile towards you, when people are angry towards you? Stephen responds full of the Holy Spirit. Not full of anger, not full of vengeance. But I want you to see here what his response to this anger and towards this hostility, what it's tied to. It's tied to the vision of glory, the glory of God that he gets to see here at the end of his life. As he's seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father in a position of authority. And, and, and he's, he's being able to see with his physical eyes what his heart has already believed. It's something that not a lot of people who walk through this life, who follow Jesus, get to experience. He gets to see with his eyes what his heart has already believed. And he's standing there and he's seeing Jesus there in a position of authority. And he's like, hey, Jesus, the one that you killed, I see him. I see him standing there in heaven at the right hand of the father. Luke twenty two sixty nine. 69, Jesus said it to his disciples. But from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of power of God. And he's going, I'm looking at him. He did it. Against Stephen seeing with his eyes what his heart has already seen. Jesus is the exalted king. See, they said, go to the temple to meet God, Stephen is seeing the heavens open up. He's seeing, hey, houses made with your hands, you can keep them. Jesus is the doorway to heaven and I can see it right in front of my eyes. Now the question is, why is Jesus standing right here? Because in most places in scripture, when we talk about Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father, 
what, what position has he taken there? He's seated, right? So why is he standing? Some believe that it maybe is a gesture of just welcoming uh, Stephen, his son, home, saluting his faithfulness. It could be that. And it's a powerful picture. But I also believe it should bring up passages like Daniel chapter 7. Do you remember Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 or 14? The way that the Son of Man is presented right there before God, given dominion over the nations. Jesus is the true king, the judge over all the nations, the great judge over everything, the sovereign ruler over all peoples. And what's happening in this moment, he's been surrounded. He's about to be killed. He's about to be pelted with stones until he's dead. And in that moment, the reason he can respond with such such grace and love and so full of the Holy Spirit is because he's looking into the heavens and he knows who the real judge is. See, he's being judged by men in that moment from an earthly perspective, but he knows who the true judge is. See, it wasn't he realizes it's not Stephen on trial, it's these guys with stones in their hands who are on trial. And Stephen was seen before his death. What he has accepted by faith for years. By the way, this is helping us understand the power behind a guy like Stephen's life. When we look at guys like this in scripture and we see how he was able to live with such courage. How he was able to live with such boldness. How he was able to live with such a great amount of, of service and faithfulness. it's, It's tied and connected to his view of Christ. How you view Christ is the most important part of you. How you view Jesus Christ impacts and has a bearing on all the different parts of your life. It drives everything in your life. How you view Christ this morning determines how you're going to walk through a season of suffering this week. How you view Christ determines how bold you'll stand as a witness for Christ this week. Like how, how is a guy like this? He's ordinary. He's uneducated. He's standing right here in front of these guys who are intimidating, who are the coolest people in the community, who you wanted to please, who you wanted to have their approval of. How is he not overwhelmed with anxiety? How is he not overwhelmed with worry? How does he not care what the most popular people think about him right here? What is different about Stephen? Because he's somewhere along the way, we get to worrying way too much about what people think. And it impacts the effectiveness that we can have as bold witnesses for Jesus Christ. Like, how do we experience almost like a carefree confidence and courage and boldness that we see in Stephen? You know what I love about watching my kids grow up is I love how there's a season of their life, very young, you know, usually in those early years, where there's a carefree confidence. They're not overthinking what people think about them. You know what I'm talking about? So I have one in that stage right now. His name's Max, and he's six years old. In this past week, one of the days, the, I don't know if it was Spirit Week or something, but they dress up on certain days and do different things. And it was Crazy Hair Day, and Max was super excited about Crazy Hair Day. He had a plan. He mapped it out. He got his mom on board, and his plan was to have an, a, a, like a neon blue um, mullet mohawk that he was going to wear to school. And he was excited about that thing. Now, I get a little nervous about that. And here's why. Because when Emma, our oldest, was uh, young, maybe first or second grade, it was pirate day. And we, she came home and said, I want to dress as a pirate. I said, you want to dress as a pirate? She's our first. You know, you go a little uh, harder in the paint with the, uh, with the older. You know? And so I was like, hey, 
We will, uh, we will dress you up like a pirate. I'm talking like pirate. You, it'll look like you just walked off a movie set, Pirates of the Caribbean. We will turn you into like a female Jack Sparrow. You will be a pirate. And so we went all in, man. We dressed her up like a pirate. I remember that morning, she was excited. We talked like a pirate on the, uh, on the way to school, you know, sent her off. She runs into school, skipping into school, ready for pirate day. And I get a call about 10 minutes later, dad, um, today's definitely not pirate day. parental fail, right? Now, kind of one of our little values at home is to take your relationship with Jesus very seriously, not yourself too seriously, all right? So we've been able to laugh about that, all right? We've been able to move past that traumatic time in our family's life, all right? But I have these flashbacks when my kids want to do things like paint their hair blue and go to school with a, a mullet mohawk. Like, what if it's not hair day? What if it's not crazy hair day? And so we pull up and I'm like looking around, like making sure. And I, I don't think it's hair day. I don't think it's crazy hair day. And then a kid with like pink hair goes by. I was like, okay, you're good. Go. All right. He's not even worried about it. And he walks in just strutting. He, he, he's not worried about a thing in the world. He gets back in the car. I've kind of thought about it throughout the day. I said, he sits down at the kitchen table when we get home. And, and I say, uh, Max, you know, how's your day? He was, he was good. I said, what did, uh, did anybody have to say? Anything to say about your hair? He's just eating his little snack. He goes, oh, yeah, everybody loved it. You know, just walks away. <laughs> Carefree confidence. Here's what's hard as a parent to see is to see that begin to fade. To see our kids get into those preteen years, into those middle school years, and because of that sinful nature that's in all of us to start to care way too much about what people think. And those insecurities begin to grip their heart. And what's really heartbreaking is we know as they begin to uh, follow Jesus Christ and they begin to have a relationship with Jesus Christ that all of those things can begin to creep into their lives And have the potential to interrupt the effectiveness that they can have in the kingdom of God. Because they deal with the same thing all of us deal with. And it's being worried about what people think about us. So how do we take steps towards a carefree confidence that we see. This courage that we see in Stephen. Here it is. We overcomplicate it by seeing Jesus as the true and risen exalted king. And waking up tomorrow and seeing him. Because I've been changed by the gospel and my eyes have been opened as the true and risen exalted king. You want to have courage in your life in the face of opposition? You want to have a peace and a strength that you can't find in this world for your soul when you walk through seasons of suffering? It starts with seeing Jesus as high. It starts with seeing Jesus as high and lifted up. And as the sovereign and true and ruling king who's working in ways we cannot see even when it feels messed up. And that truth right there, and he gets his eyes get to see it, what he's already believed. The fact that he already had it in his heart explains to us and helps us understand what drove him as a Christ follower. And as Jesus there in his heart, and now with his eyes seeing him high and lifted up, man, it emboldens him in this moment to end his life as a bold witness for Christ. But as Jesus is standing there, listen, it also empowers him to love like Jesus in the darkest moment of his life. How do you love your enemies like this? Like you don't cram for a moment like this. You know what this is a result of? This is a result of a man who has 
continuously kept his eyes fixed on the preeminence of Christ and has kept his life day in, here it is, day in and day out on the gospel, about the gospel, oriented around the gospel. You spend your life preaching the gospel to yourself day in and day out. It's not about religion, not about rules. I'm adopted. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I'm fully forgiven. I've been justified. I've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You preach the gospel to your heart each and every day. You grow in your understanding of the gospel that the king of the universe is slain for sinners like us. You behold that and you become more like that. That is how he prays like he does. Stephen has beheld Jesus so much that he's becoming like Jesus in his darkest hour. And as they remove their coats and they lay them at the feet of this man named Saul, you know what they're doing as they lay down their coats? That's basically, we, we would say it like this, they rolled their sleeves up. That's how angry they were. So that they could throw the stones harder. And they begin to pelt him in the face with these stones. And what does he do? He cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Same thing he heard Jesus cry out on the cross. Very similar. The force of the stones drive him down to his knees and he yells out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Jesus said the same thing. And then it says he fell asleep. He died. What's the result of this? I hope some of you know. What is the result of all of this happening? The stoning of the ordinary disciple fully devoted to Christ named Stephen. Well, it has to do with that man standing there. Saul's not just a coat rack. Saul's a Pharisee. And as we're going to see in a few weeks, Saul saw the glory of God reflected on the face of this ordinary sold out disciple in such a way and heard him pray a prayer so powerfully. He never forgot it. He never forgot what he saw. It haunted him. And as one commentator said, the blood of Stephen soaking into the ground became the seed of the apostle Paul's faith. Think about that. Just think about that. God, we're talking about Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul. God used the bold witness of an ordinary man named Stephen and his faithfulness in the face of death to help point a man named Saul to Jesus Christ, who will go on to write more books in the New Testament than anybody else. Who will go on to be what some have called as the greatest Christian to ever live. But but listen, this is the part that we don't like. You ready? We look back and we admire that story. We have problems embracing it. And here's why. You ready? Because when you look at this, you begin to realize that Stephen's most impactful contribution right here to the work of Jesus came not through his greatest moment of blessing, but through his greatest moment of pain. Paul was not converted because he watched Stephen be delivered miraculously. He was converted because he saw The hope that gripped this ordinary man's life, even when God didn't deliver him. What an important lesson. We don't go looking for pain. We don't go looking for problems, but it often finds us. And the impact that we make for God and his glory, listen, is often at a larger and louder volume and more impactful in seasons of pain than it is in seasons of riches and blessing. Our Western consumeristic minds have problems with that. We don't like that. We like comfort. We like convenience. We like seasons of blessing. We're like, I'm all about glorifying God. Like, but give me something here, God, and I will really glorify you. You hook me up with this job promotion. I will give you some good publicity. 
I will tell some people about you. I will praise you. I will worship you. You bless my life and I'll bless you. We like glorifying God. The problem is we often like glorifying God on our own terms. And that's why we play goofy games and we make his will and his plans about things that comfort us and our conveniences. We do that, right? Like obviously it is the Lord's will that I pull in here and get me a hot and fresh Krispy Kreme donut. I mean, the light's on. Surely the Lord wants me to experience this. The line and the line's short. So this has got to be God's will for my life, right? And it may be. That is a good thing to experience. But we like, we like those things being part of God's plan for our life. We don't like the suffering. We don't like the pain. And yet, that's exactly what sometimes in our life, what God has ordered for us to walk through. Sometimes you'll hear things like, the safest place you'll ever be is in the will of God. Amen. Put that on a coffee mug. Yeah, say that to Jesus on the cross. Say that to Stephen getting his face pelted with stones. He does not promise safety. He promises himself. He promises his eternity. He promises eternity. He promises us the, an overall good and perfect plan no matter what we face. And he, pro- he promises us if we follow him, even through the pain, it will be worth it. We may not get to see it on this side. Stephen doesn't get to see it. Stephen doesn't get to see what we're about to celebrate in a couple of weeks and seeing the conversion of Saul. But I do have to believe that when Stephen got to heaven, his heart, his mind was flooded with the, re- with the reality that it was worth it. It was worth it. I can't pretend to know. It's a little bit of conjecture here. I can't pretend to know the first words that Stephen heard when he walked into the presence of Jesus as he fell asleep. But I, I just imagine, was there, was there a way in that moment for Jesus to embrace him? And for, I know that was hard turnaround. You think I saw? You have no idea. You have no idea the impact he's about to make on that earth. The kingdom of God for my glory. And you are faithful. You are faithful even through a season of pain. He'll be the greatest apologist who will ever live. Listen, most of us will not face death this week. Some people in the world will, and we need to pray for them. So the question I don't think to ask that would be right right now is would you be willing to die? That is an important question, but I think a more important question on this side of the world for us to ask is why am I willing to live for Christ this week? Am I willing to live sold out like this ordinary devoted disciple named Stephen? Am I willing to bow my knee to Jesus Christ this week? Am I willing to lean on him? Am I willing to yield to the Holy Spirit that my life might be filled with his grace and his love and his spirit and his power and his wisdom? Am I willing to pray dangerous prayers like God break me or bless me? Whatever your will is, you give it to me. Stephen died well because he lived well. We need more Stevens. We need more Stevens. And that's what I'm praying this morning. Not because we're trying to follow Stephen, but because we're trying to follow Jesus Christ. And God's word gives us a great example of what that looks like in Stephen's life. Let's pray.